0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins, and I'm sat here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper, Morrison, and Bowie. And Hello, Barney. Not in the cupboards, but n- in the other cupboards. In, in, <laughs> in a different Rocks Back Pages cupboard. Yeah, yeah. the usual I, cupboard. We can't sit, be there because... They're drilling. They're drilling outside.
1: You probably hear it from here anyway, but... Yeah, and you're... We're he- decamped, or recamped, or whatever. <laughs>
2: Camped.
0: You'll get some ambient external noise anyway. After last week's stellar guest, Neil Tennant, RBP's core session men, returned to discuss everything that's new on Rocksback Pages this week, including an audio interview with cult figure Buzzy Linhart and library pieces about Paul McCartney, John Cooper Clark and Loudon Wainwright and Son. But first... We're going to talk about the week's free offerings, starting with a band many would consider to be the funkiest four-piece ever to come out of America. Who am I talking about, Mark? You're talking about The Meters. The Mighty Meters. The Mighty Meters. Barney, when did you first become aware of The Meters? I think the honest truth is I only really began to understand what The Meters were all about when they supported the Stones at Earl's Court, and I saw two of those shows in the summer of 76. And I'd heard of them, but I don't really know what their place was in the story of American R&B and funk and New Orleans. Um, So it was only really subsequent to that that I understood that they were the kind of engine room behind kind of Alan Toussaint's sound, particularly in in New Orleans. I mean, I'd, I'd been becoming increasingly aware of them
2: over about 73, 74, 75, I became aware of these names on the back of Dr John Album covers, the specifically Right Place, Wrong Time, and desertively Bonnaroo, which is
0: essentially... So you just see the same names coming up? I see the
2: same names. Those names are pretty fabulous,
1: well, incidentally, you know, Zigaboo, It must be the greatest
0: name It must be the greatest name uh, And um, I absolutely love it.
2: Then I spent a lot of time hanging around my friend Jamie, his girlfriend, Jamie's place... Jamie went as a drummer, went on to produce my band's first yeah. album. This would be summer 75." Yeah. and he was playing this album over and over again, called "Rejuvenation." Yeah, and it just knocked me flat. Yeah. So the following September, beginning the term, with my fresh new student grant yes, we had student grants in those days. Happy young days. young people. I went to say this, it's not school. We, we lament that very much. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I went to this record shop in West Hampster, where I was living at the time. And I bought Rejuvenation. I bought Southern Nights Ball and Two Saint. I bought Robert Palmer's Sneakers and Sally Through the Alley, which has basically got the Meters yep. playing on it. And I also got Lee Dorsey's 1970 album Yes We Can, yep. which again has got the Meters yeah, on it. So yeah, I bought yeah, four yeah. albums which were either the Meters or Meters associated. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I also bought Grove Washington Jr.'s Mister Magic, which does rather let the, side the less said about <laughs> it's actually it's, bad, not, it's, bad. Not, it's bad, not bad. It's not bad. bad. bad but agree. but, but you know, records. And so I just completely fell in love with me. started hearing, listening back to their earlier stuff, the sophisticated c- 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 sissy The Josie
0: material. Absolutely.
2: Which is quite different. I mean, they've still got those, some of the same sort of grooves. But yeah, lots of second line kind yeah. of rhythms. But it's a, it's a different sort of like band sound. I mean, Rejuvenation is much more, in a sense, a mainstream funk album.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: But I just, just I still love it to this day. It's absolutely right. one of my favorite records. And then, like you, I, I actually went to see the Stones in '76, not to see the Stones, so I'd already fed up with by then, but
0: to see the You're oh, such, was... such a music snob! Was,
2: I'm totally. And,
0: Did you and... leave before the Stones? No, That's the question. How about it to? Well, well, exactly? Yeah, it there, like, there. See, but, I mean,
2: see? It, it was this is Earl's <laughs> Court, and the acoustics were terrible. The meters played in a really small stage
0: in front of the stones. Remember that well.
2: With the, the house lights up and a yeah. sort of pseudo carnival. Really going, weird, going and nobody
0: on. paying any attention. No one, no. T-
2: except for well,
0: for you, y- you, you. Yeah,
2: I guess. And they they really didn't, they didn't last long after that. They're far and above the bayous, are, the current album when.
1: That was quite successful, though. As a result of the Stones thing, I think it was
0: one of them. Oh, commercially, I think it was one of them more successful. In fact, they never out. had any great no, success. Not, they they really. had to cult acclaim much yep. more. They, I mean, Sissy Strut" was a top 30 hit in yep. America, but that was it in yep. terms of hits. And that was way back in 69. 69.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, they were important, really, for as much as a, as a session band as a studio band for the likes of Doctor John and countless other New Orleans R and B Going
0: back to '65. Yeah, 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 of yeah.
2: A- absolutely. About like, three, four years ago, I saw that Ziggy East was playing in the Hundred Club in London, and I I went along, not expecting a whole lot. I mean, he is one of the great drummers in African oh, American yeah. music, without any shadow of a doubt. And you know. Yes, half the audience of people like me with grey hair and sort of middle-aged spread and so on and so forth. But interestingly, because the meters have some cachet amongst young people... Yeah. Yeah. Hi... Yeah, exactly. You know, the likes of Mr. Miroslav Bowie I'd forgotten there.
0: Jasper was young yeah, for a moment there.
2: Well, it's because he, he had and us. Anyway. <laughs>
0: I think the uh, word you're looking
1: for is more mature. That doesn't necessarily mean older. There you go. But,
2: but anyway, what was great was there was a substantial young audience for this show at Hamford Club. And you could see the band. I mean, they were kind of young... New Orleans are a big band with the elderly Ziggy behind yeah. the drums. And you could see them light up because it's kind of pretty girls were dancing to them. And yeah. they really raised their game. Yeah. And it was, it was really good. But Modal least in the room, 100 Club, was he mic'd up? I'm not sure he mic'd up. Wow. He was that loud a drummer, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he was just jaw-dropping.
0: Because, wow.
2: Yeah, so that was a real
0: pleasure. I wish I'd seen that. Yeah. That is fantastic. The reason we're talking about the Mighty Meters is because... Cherry Red, of all labels, you know, Cherry Red, you would sort of associate with sort of rather fay indie bands from the 80s. <laughs> but they do quite interesting reissued stuff now. So they, they have packaged together every Meters album. So did, I think the three albums they did yeah, yeah. for Josie, and then the what, three albums they did for Warners. Yeah. I mean, there's at least six albums there. So it is the whole Meters story. And we put together a playlist on Spotify that hopefully will kind of illustrate just how extraordinary the meters yeah. were. I mean, it, you know, they sort of combined elements of Booker T and the MGs yes. with, with sort of elements of James Brown, the famous yep. flames, didn't they? But the, but they gave it, and it's such, it sounds like such a cliche to say it, such a specifically New Orleans flavor. Absolutely. Can, can can you just talk a little bit about about that and how that sounds? you know, came about. What they what well, they put in it and what they left out. It's a lot to I, do with I, I, the sort of second line yes. rhythms,
1: the, the uh, brass bands, even though yeah. they're obviously not a brass-based no. or horn-based funk band, the, they still I, use those kind of melodic and rhythmic ideas particularly.
2: I, I, I think that's some true. I think your comparison to Booker T and the MGs is, is appropriate in that they had the same basic lineup of Hammond guitar, bass and drums.
0: And were at the heart uh, of the sessions uh, that Alan Toussaint uh, 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 was absolutely. doing.
2: Absolutely. Well, and what they had was Zigaboo East, actually, yes. to put it bluntly, that he was a uniquely New Orleans-style drummer and was probably the best. I mean, when you think about it, Earl Palmer was the original New Orleans drummer, correct? Correct. He goes to Los Angeles in the mid early yes. 60s, leaving a, basically a vacant, a, drum, a vacant drum seat for whoever's good enough, and it's Zigaboo East yeah. who is good enough. And he has a particular, as you say, second-line style, not much... Very little ride cymbal, not much at that. It. It's so, so much based around the snare drum the kick drum. Yeah, yeah. Like, Absolutely. It's da a da sort da of da marching kind it, of... It, it certainly evolves. It's from street parades. Exactly. And so that, that's the core of the sound. Minimalist bass playing, close almost to, like, reggae bass playing. The yes. funk bass playing. And wonderful clipped guitar, which is, relates to James Brown's saying. So there's an element of Jimmy Nolan in there, but not so kind of rapid fire, repetitive. Do you, you a, have
0: an authoritative pronunciation of the guitarist's name? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <give it laughs> Neo uh, Leo Nocentelli. Nocentelli? Nocentelli. Nocentelli. don't know whether it's a... Uh, a... I guess it sounds, I mean, it sounds N- Italian. Yeah, it's an Italian so name. So but how do you spell it? Nocentelli. Nocentelli, I guess. And, of course, uh, uh,
2: as Art Neville... Yeah, Art Neville being yeah, um, not genteelly, um, not, Chantelli. not Chantelli. Art Neville being one of the, the, the three, four Neville brothers. Four Neville four brothers, Neville I brothers. think. After yeah. when the meters fell pieces, the Neville brothers sort of got back together and became what eventually was, was the Neville brothers, but without the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, it's sad. You know, I, I really don't believe in bands reuniting. I hate this sort of thing, but it, it's kind of sad that the meters never did anything in the last 30 years because Art died, what, a couple of years back, I Yeah, think. they
0: did reunite. They, I did, mean, they the, did tour a bit yeah, and they, they played. they did play. Right. They were, I mean, I think there were fallings out yes. you, as ever to do with like, money and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, Zygmode at least wanted... A, fell out with the others right. over, over some money thing, yeah. but they did come I mean, the, the last of the three pieces we're featuring about the meters is by our friend Joel Selvin in San mm-hmm. Francisco, and he's basically hanging out backstage with them at the film hall when they're playing yeah, yeah november twenty o five they they played shows then they had already played some jazz festivals that year, mm-hmm. so they
1: they did the original quartet did yeah, come right. back together, and they had a couple of other sort of they had. The Funky Meters, which was a couple of them, and they have the, the meter Men, which is one of the guys, the guys me- with yeah. fish
0: or something. It's the usual the they they didn't play over yeah. the last sort of twenty years. Yeah. but it was it was sort of inconsistent. And yeah. the Neville Brothers obviously were full steam ahead. Just going back to, the, to you know what your discussion of the unique sound of mm-hmm. the Meters. One of the other pieces that we're featuring is by the great Don Snow and the excellent Don Snow. Mm-hmm. Great written pieces. such great stuff on Black American music of all descriptions. And and he kind of, he talks to George Porter, the bass player. Right. And he maybe gets to the heart of this. He, he, he says that we used to play all over the backbeat. And I'm guessing this goes back to like 65 when they were playing on Lee Dorsey sessions, yeah. Betty yeah. Harris sessions. Yeah. You think about something mm. like Trouble With My Lover by Betty Harris. It's such a unique soul sound. Mm-hmm. And he's, so Porter says, we used to play all over the backbeat, but Saint pulled me and Leo's coat to hit that note and let it come through. The space started really happening when we started breathing and letting the snare drum pop out. Yep. You know, so that's quite interesting. So yes. I, I mean, I think when you listen to those great meters size, like sissy strap, yep. like look of pie and so forth, it's as important what you're not hearing as what you are hearing. You're hearing a lot of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sissy strap. Yep. There's so much space yep. in there, isn't there? Yeah. I think that might be a kind of key, and I think they also talk in this interview about how a lot of their tracks are driven by the bass playing the melody line, yeah, which yeah. is very different yeah. from Snacks or Motown yeah, or anything
2: absolutely. else. I mean, and they did evolve, as I say, into the rejuvenation of those meters. but it still got the same elements still got the same space the same you've got feel I tracks think. like Just Kiss My Baby which is oh, just oh. astonishing I mean Hey Pocky Way I mean it's just yes. three or four Just
1: Kiss My Baby is one of my favourite tracks of all
0: time it's, it's just when we did my our, like, 100 Greatest Funk tracks of yeah. all time which is nearly 20 years ago <laughs> yeah. on Back Pages it's still there somewhere I think Just Kiss My Baby we kind of end up voting it like literally numbers two or three something like yeah, that behind like, like In Time by the Family yeah. Stone and the James Brown, Perhaps but it was right up there. Or something, you know. and, it, and yet, it's so simple. Just. Yeah, it's, so it's so sparse. sparse.
1: It's the sparse. sparseness that gets that gets it so funky. Yeah. I think
0: the bass line is just—it's just like it just goes over these very simple ground notes. Yeah, and Modal East is just kind of playing around those, those yeah, that foundations. One so thing I didn't brilliant. know
1: that I learned from the Snowden piece was that. Apparently, Zig wasn't the original drummer. No, correct. The other drummer <laughs> yeah. developed some illness and went into the hospital. Zig came to sit in with us for two weeks, and when the other drummer came back and heard Zig play, he said, Oh man, I can't ask for that job back. He voluntarily quit, and Zig kept <laughs> the job. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're
3: still you with know this when you beat, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like a king. Yeah.
0: Because I just kissed my baby.
2: Just a fantastic band. And they had a. Com- Extended influence, I mean, aside from the stuff they played on, like, I believe they play on that first LaBelle album that yeah. was done with... Yeah, they're on Lady Mar- Marmalade, absolutely. for a start, yeah. They also hugely influence from bands like Little Feet, who we're huge oh, yeah. fans of. Oh, yeah, completely, uh, completely. You know, you know, hoovering up that sort of groove. And when Lowell replaced, essentially, the bass player and brought in percussions in Little Feet, they become a
0: distinctly New Orleans font-bounders yeah. in many, many respects. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. The first of the three pieces is by our friend Vivian Goldman. Oh. And this interview is done, I'm guessing, either just before, probably just before the Stones shows at the Oscorp. Yeah, yeah. Elscort. So it's, it's basically Art Neville in a hotel room, probably yeah, yeah. like the Montcalm or something. And, and, <laughs> and she says she's sitting there with Cliff White... From the enemy, She's interviewing art for sounds and there's, you know, someone from the record company and so forth, yeah. She says Cliff White from A.N. Other Music Weekly. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> it's, it's
0: it's it's Vivian, like, riffing in a wonderfully kind of yeah. soulful way. It's a funny encounter. An art novel is pretty forthcoming, yeah, I yeah. think. They sort of expect him to be a bit more guarded. And he's actually quite honest about, you know, kind of Toussaint took a little more credit for than the meter's he... sound, and perhaps he deserved to.
2: Yes, but then again, you've also mentioned the, the George Porter quote, which actually points to Alan Toussaint having so. The, the truth deserving. is probably somewhere sure. in the middle. I of imagine, that, that, yes. You know? yes, and the fact that Toussaint worked with them over so many years, evolving his own sound.
1: Yeah, right. It, it's it, always it, going, it, going to be a give and take in that yeah. kind of working relationship. And he will that, have taken as much as he will have given, yeah. and I think that's how yeah. that developed alongside. But each I mean, other. the one thing
2: Toussaint has is a broad musical vision, which I doubt individual members of the Mises necessarily had. That's possibly true. I think so. He's proved that over and over again in all kinds mm. of different
0: contexts. So. Mm. At the very end of the interview, <laughs> Vivian writes, Art asked me, aren't you going to ask me what I think of the stones? <laughs> 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 so, so Vivian goes... OK, what do you think? And, and he, he just kind of says what you'd expect, given that they're touring the world with the Stones. They're a dynamite group. They hang out with us, come into the dressing room, and we jammed on stage with them and Eric Clapton a couple of nights back. They're nice people. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course he says that. And
2: actually, you know what? They
0: probably, they probably were, were. They were. They were in awe of and the And I think, I think
1: Zig went on to tour with...
0: He was in the New Barbarians right, right. with Ron Wood. Oh, right. He was that drummer. Oh, I mean, the thing is, you know, you've got to give Stones credit
2: is that they always were in the business of promoting black music on their tour. Absolutely. Going and right that was sincere. To, going right was... back to 69, you know, with Ike and Tina Turner yeah. and B.B. King and so on. Of so course. So. So, you know, the, 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 that's what they did. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could, a lot of people say, yes, but they were ripping off black music. Well, well, that's a
1: given. That's a given. It doesn't
0: mean yeah. that they weren't you know, helpful to some of these musicians. And, and
1: they sort of did the right thing in that instance of using the platform that they then had yeah, sure. through the various advantages they had to then also lift other people... Well, I mean, didn't Stevie Wonder support on the 72
2: Yeah. And he... That was at the beginning of him yeah. becoming a massive
0: star. Yeah, that Prince was just, supported the Stones as well. I, know, right. I can't remember how many dates that was, yeah. but it would have been 80, maybe two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Controversy around them. Right. Prince was a support act yeah. in some of the US dates. No,
2: it's, 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 you know, good for them.
0: Yeah. I am not going
2: to bitch about that.
0: No, exactly. So so that's the meters. And actually, at some point in the future, we will be adding Cliff White's audio interview yes. with... Oh, Never, really? Which is probably from this very yes. hotel room probably. with Vivian sitting in the you background. You know exactly well, yeah, in the background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. people say, people say What, the people, say, what the people say? Also free on the Roxback Pages homepage this week are three pieces by the Excellent Francis Morgan. This is a a very different sort of area of music. So we're going from New Orleans to the mid-noughties. Francis wrote a number of pieces for Plan B magazine, which was Everett True's follow-up publication to careless talk costs lives and she um, was the co-editor with she was the co-editor of plan b we're hoping to get much more of her stuff on we haven't got an an awful lot but it is really really good it's also really interesting for me particularly to read early pieces about acts that are now you know you'd have to say a really established big Mm. name act like joanna newsome one early interview with joanna newsome from 2004 and then a review of the arcade fires first ever uk gig at the following at king's college year. union at king's college In exactly London. they're really great pieces as is the third of her pieces that we picked which is just a really a lovely piece about being you know, someone of a much younger generation who is introduced to the first four albums by Can, who we talked about recently, <laughs> yeah. and it's just a, yeah. a, a really lovely, poetic piece. I hadn't read any listening of her writing to Can. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's beautiful. I mean, it starts: my memories aren't sepia tinted; they're midnight blue and smile white. Fleet-footed, but with ash on my toes and holes in my tights where I kicked off my junk shop red suede boots in the corner. Long hair, long arms, long legs flickering. Yeah. It's just very, yeah. very, very yeah. beautiful yeah. prose. Yeah. A real th- discovery for me. I really hadn't read any of her pieces no, before. I mean, I, I, and I'm I, really I, looking I, forward to looking for some more, actually.
2: Until we got those copies of Plan B, I'd never even come across the magazine. He has to confess, yeah. you know. Yeah, but exactly. It's good, it's
0: good stuff. Exactly. And she writes of You Do Write, of course, from their first album, Monster Movie. Here's the Gnostic gospel of Malcolm Mooney, holding on by his fingertips to a groove that, six minutes in, threatens to become a tightly reined fall. a groove that's smearing and seesawing, rough enough to send warm waves coursing up my spine, but sublimely sexless, too. Music for a woman to walk tall to. Ah. And I think that's really interesting. there, There is something curiously... Androgynous, but not not sort of male. Not no. I
2: think that's absolutely right. I, actually, that's really one of the great qualities of a bunch of the crowd rock bands. It says the same about Faust as well. Yeah. Is that this is the opposite, the antithesis of cock rock. Yes. You know. Um, exactly. And because they were interested in textures and things like that. And Demo Suzuki as a singer is almost. It's quite feminine at times yeah. in, in in his approach. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. I'm yeah, saying that, that's, I that think was, so. That
0: was good. Just briefly, the new interview is wonderful. September twenty o four.
2: You're a big Newsom fan, um, aren't you? I'm a
0: huge Newsom fan. I understand that she's, you know, very Marmite. Interestingly for me, Frances goes into the reasons for that and she posits the idea that actually people can't handle the, the emotional intimacy of Newsom's vocal style, and I think there's something in that. I think sometimes you can mishear what she does as being rather affected and precious and twee. I think if you really plunge into her records, I think they go way beyond that. It is um, quite consuming, it's quite... It's deep. quite a commitment. Yeah, but
1: I think she's written some very, very beautiful music and beautiful lyrics as well. She's got some really wonderful, very poetic kind of stories that she tells through music.
0: She is a great you know writer of verse. And just... Really interesting person, too. She's 22 years old at this point, and Francis writes that her debut album, which was called The Milk-Eyed Mender, slowly is surely becoming a classic. An unusual instrument she plays, both distinctively and beautiful, i.e. the harp and a voice that perplexes and beguiles in equal measure. It makes perfect sense that Joanna Newsom should have become a new kind of folk heroine. But she questions what it means to be cast in the role of naive, of pixie, of child woman, which has become a bit of a cliché around performers like Newsom, I think. I and think she it points, has. I think you're all right. Yeah. She says, you know, Newsom's story Francis is also right. a story of hard work, scholarship... And an intensely thoughtful and intelligent young woman. I absolutely concur with that. She's a very skillful
1: um, musician as well. There are some wonderful videos of her singing and playing the harp yeah. on YouTube, and they're well worth just yeah. watching because they're just stunning. I mean, mm. she's, she's, she's so virtuoso- talented and virtuosity. Yeah, well. I, I have to confess,
2: I've never really spent much time listening mm. to her. I really should do
0: that because. A lot of people's opinions are respect outside of this room. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think if you start, I mean, a way in for me, I think would be the triple CD set that she put out, Have One on Me, which is really ambitious, mm-hmm. but it's sort of closer to maybe 70s singer songwriter kind of stylings, right. closer to sort of somebody like Judy Silk. Yeah. Whereas some of the other albums are, there's an album called East. East? East, yeah. which has these extraordinary string arrangements mm. by Van Dyke Parks, uh, I mean, I think it's brilliant, but I could understand people just not being able to get their heads around it. Well, at curiously,
1: all. that may be the stuff I'd like more than stuff. There's something sometimes quite Kate Bush-esque about some of her. Right, she's in that well. line,
0: isn't she? I think, I think so.
1: I think so. But I, I mean, I would possibly actually. You saying you might want to start with East? I think it is
0: more out there. I would say yeah. it's pretty out there. It's kind of. Chamber pop. The harp is very much in the foreground. There isn't a lot of instrumentation apart from Van Dyck's string arrangements, which are quite incredible.
2: Harp's an interesting instrument, because, I mean, it's something that... I've been immersing myself in Alice Coltrane in recent recent years. And she's an exceptionally good, mm. good oh, harpist yeah. in, a, obviously, a very different context. They're very much like a melding of Indian and jazz things together. But the harp is really, really beautiful. And then, of course, it's Dorothy Ashby. Yes. Who I first became aware of when I was reading the sleeve notes to Bobby Wernhert, Poet Two. Right. And when those songs open with a great swirl of harp looking for a way to say goodbye good and those point. sorts of songs. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly realising that the harp is... Can be a really fabulous instrument in context other than kind of cheese or classical oh, music yeah. or whatever. You
0: know, I agree.
2: I mean, Dorothy Ashby is really interesting. She made a quite, she made a few records herself. She also earned a living playing harp in hotels.
0: You know, <laughs> what generation was
2: Dorothy? She, was, oh, well, she was
0: she sort of older than Bobby. I mean, she was she cut uh, a generation older, maybe. Probably around, maybe the, around same, the same. Age. Around the same. She
2: also kind of did a lot of session work as a black session player in Los Angeles. Sure. There weren't many black no. session players in Los Angeles no. in the sixties and seventies. But no, she's exceptional. As I say, Alice Coltrane is someone who I actually come to adore. Bits of you know, bits of Alice Coltrane. I think are just fabulous. Yeah.
0: I have this pet theory that the kinds of eccentric, shall we say, female artists, that kind of it's a line that maybe runs from sort of Laura Nero through not really, Joni obviously is much more accepted by a broader range of people but Ricky Lee Jones, Kate Bush, Björk Joanna Newsom. I mean, I sort of think that a lot of men have real difficulty with that music because it's so different from sort of meat and potatoes yes. male rock, and they're kind of offended by the sort the eccentricity, the risks, that the voice, the stride voice. I mean I don't mean stride, I don't mean literally no. the vocal, I mean the artistic voice. Exactly, but, but I think men hear it as slightly sometimes a bit what well, hysterical. There's a very misogynistic attitude to those mm-hmm. kinds of right. performers. And I think it has a lot to do with actually they just feel uncomfortable at how, in a sense, uninhibited Yes. The singing is, you know, and I think And, nake- f- and
2: nakedly feminine as well. And nakedly feminine. You know, so exactly. Not, so, That's yes. just very interesting. Yeah. Be a woman, be
3: a woman, oh. We've been a sprint.
2: Anyway,
0: so Three Pieces by Francis Morgan, hoping to add a lot more, hoping perhaps we'll get her in for the podcast one day. That'd I, be great. I, she, she was briefly the deputy editor of The Wire, right. which we all revere, of course. So, Mark, you're going to tell us a little bit about the audio interview.
2: Yes, well, actually, I'm going to throw it straight back at you. It's Steve Roser interviewing Buzzy Linhart, who died last week, week before last week. Yeah,
0: about 10, 12 days ago. Right.
2: In July 2008. But... Barney, tell us who Buzzy Linhart was.
0: Well, you know, I have to confess, I'm no expert on Buzzy Linhart. I mean, he's a pretty obscure figure who we might not even be talking about if his name wasn't Buzzy. (laughs) 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 Do you know what I mean? Sometimes, you know, having a kind of eccentric name gives you a little little more posterity. He
2: he was sort of... Out of that white blues American tradition uh, in which you keep like Jeff Malder and so
0: on. So. Exactly, he was a sort of Greenwich Village guy. Yes, who played around the village, and we'll be talking about the Cafe Gogo yes, in a minute. Absolutely, and he sort of pops up here, there, yeah. and everywhere. Not quite a Zelig, but it, it could have been yes. a Zelig. You know, so he has a song on Carly Simon's first yeah. album. Yeah, he co-wrote. Bet Midler's one of Bet Midler's signature songs, "Friends," yes. with Moogie Klingman, who later played with Todd Rundgren in Utopia. Right. I mean, this is, it's very New York. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he was a guitar player. He was a vibraphonist, um, and he was a sort of fixture. But he faded away. Well, he, he really a, did fade away because he's a mediocrity. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'll uh, I'm glad you said uh, it, so you I didn't know, have to. Uh, I never like <laughs> slacking y- people off.
2: Y- yesterday, we played. What the little two, two or three albums yeah. on
0: Spotify. And I don't
2: they,
1: think
0: any of us really the, were the, grabbed by them, to be honest. They were, pretty, they were terrible. Of course, Spade the Spade. They were pretty shit. He's gone now, we can't <laughs> hurt his feelings.
2: But this interview is pretty interesting because as funny. you say, he was a scenester in like, Greenwich Village. And he firstly talks about how his version of he did Dina Valenti's Get Together, which the previous The Kingston Trio recorded in 64, but otherwise everyone had forgotten about. Then he was doing a gig at the Cafe o Gogo yep. with the Young bloods. right? And he basically gets kind of he gave it to the Young Bloods. Right. He then had a huge hit huge with hit it. with it, yes. Uh, and he's quite resentful. You it's kind of like that should have been mine. Right. And this is that's the tone That's throughout. the sort of story of his life. that Should have been me. Yeah. The tone throughout this. Yeah. He's quite amusingly cantankerous. Oh and yeah, <laughs> and he's also on. He's a bit of a flake. I mean, this is a man who's probably spent most of his life drugging and drinking, and his brain is not in the best nick. I suspect. Um, as he tells. A highly unreliable stories about the owner of Howard Solomon of the cafe O'Gogo about... He claims that Howard Solomon set up Lenny Bruce's bust when other people say, in fact, Solomon... Well, but when you have
0: selected a clip uh, have
2: Well, let's listen to
3: that now. One of the most horrible things that Howard ever did aside from warning the bands at the beginning of the week that if they got caught smoking marijuana in the dressing room that he, there would be a $50 fine. Then he would walk into the dressing room while you're warming up, say, hey, guys, you got any pot? Come on, I know you got a little pot. Let's smoke Come on, let's do it. And then you'd smoke with him. He'd get high, and at the end of the week, he would give you a, a $50 fine for every night that you smoked a joint with him. That jerk. The worst thing he ever did, he called the police. He, he went out to the corner phone and he called the police. And, and he's the reason money Bruce got busted at the Cafe o Gogo. He wanted the publicity. He wanted the front page of the newspaper. He was just rotten. Howard Solomon went out to the phone on the corner of uh, Bleecker Street and Thompson and put a dime in, which was what it cost. Then, of course, and called the police, claimed he was an elderly person who had been out to have a wonderful evening with his elderly wife, and they were just aghast to find this man coming up on on the on the stage and and saying all these pornographic things. And the police came right over and busted Lenny Bruce. And the Cafe Gogo was packed every day for the rest of the city. Just. A horrible, horrible,
0: horrible fucking guy. I love the <laughs> idea of going out for a pleasant evening with your elderly wife <laughs> yeah. and choosing to go and see Lenny Bruce At the cafe. <laughs> 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 um,
3: Let's
0: go see Lenny. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, so uh, the, why this interview is worth
2: listening to is there's it's a lot of really good stories in it. You know, He talks about this guy Jimmy James playing around the corner at the Cafe while, of course, Jimi Hendrix. He had a band called The Seventh Sons and... Their drummer, Serge Katzen, was apparently useless. And he blames this useless drummer who he felt unable to fire for the reason why the band were unsuccessful. There's a lot of that sort of stuff. Why did he
0: feel unable to fire him? just... Uh, It's
2: just just bullshit, you know, frankly. Um, (laughs) That that, that he he was poached by Steve Paul for the scene... He jams with Jimi Hendrix. He went he's, to- on the- he's, on a- he's on a Jimi Hendrix record, isn't he? he, he so he claims on this, you know. Oh, yeah, he's, he's actually on Electric Lady. I'm yeah. not quite sure what playing, he's I think playing vibes. I think is playing vibes. vibes. Which is you know, that's a qualification a of some point. sort. Of, you know, I wouldn't I mean, mind.
0: being on We <laughs> would never wish. ever hear the end of it. <laughs> never hear the end of it. And this week uh, we'll be talking uh, about yeah. <laughs> when I played on an active label.
2: Um he goes to England as part of a tour where it turns out no one's got work permits and he finds himself stranded. And he'd been pursued by Lou Reisner for the Mercury label. And he says Lou Reisner's a gangster. I mean, just still, this is the tone of this interview. Everyone's a shit a gangster, you know? <laughs> Lou Reisner's a gangster. And he said no to him over and over again. Then he's stuck in England, and because he needs bailing out, he calls up Lou Reisner and signs Mercury. Then, of course, that record stiffs, and he blames it on everyone but himself, you know? It's, that's, that's the nature of this, this interview. You know, and he's, 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 the stories are great, but, you know, it's not someone you want to hang out with particularly. <laughs>
0: Can't be said. Yeah, I mean, you know, you asked at the beginning. To tell us about Buzzy Linhart. Just he's one of those names yeah. that you kind of, you know, I'd
1: you... never heard before in my entire life until no. probably
0: Tuesday this week. And I know you were delighted to hear it when you <laughs> did finally hear it, Jasper. I think you said something like, "Oh, great, Buzzy Linhart. Is he another of those useless old white?" Funky singer songwriter types. To which I could only say, well, broadly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean but, but you know, we listened to the stuff yesterday and anyway, it'sn't great. It's I'm really afraid it is. It's, it's, it's cord, right? no it's, sorry. Wor- it's worse than that. Sorry, it's sorry, worse sorry. Than not great. <laughs> sorry, Buzzy fan.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so
2: Zero out of three for Buzzy on this week's podcast. Uh, he, told- Bye, he, Buzzy. He, he tells an amusing story which we'll play at the end of the the podcast where he does the foolish thing of buying Son House a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> uh, and then everyone says to him afterwards, "You never buy Son House whiskey." Because- Did
0: you buy Mister House some whiskey? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: Mister House, Mister House. <laughs> <laughs> <Mr>. House>, <laughs> House, with hilarious results. Yes. So that, that's, that, that's that's that's
0: basic- to look forward. Stick around bones. for that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Right. Do you
0: want to march through some of your
2: highlights? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff this week, but not many things that I found compelling to describe in this, this. This is really interesting. April 66, Melody Maker. Chris Welch profiling, but also talking to Neil Innes of the then Bonzo Dog Doodah band. I think this may well be the very first art school on the Bonzo Dog Doodle Band oh, really? anywhere. Wow. They're still at art school. Six, the band six, is still yeah. at art school. Yeah. I have a, one of my ex-brother-in-laws, through a couple of them, <laughs> one of them actually played trombone for the Bonzo Dog Doodle Band when he was at the Royal College of Art. Really? Yeah. They were, I mean, I'll read his bit. He says, we're not doing a temperance seven. We're murdering a temperance seven. And it's just a mm-hmm. defiant member of the most incredible new rhythm ensemble, the wonderful Bonzo Dog Doodle Band this week. Fans of this nine piece art student orchestra, dedicated to recreating what they call cornology, know from their own exposure to the sounds of Bonzo they bear little or no resemblance to the old Temps. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Temperance 7 were really cheesy, sort of 20s, mock 20s. Pas-dee-s- 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. While well, the Bonzo Dog Band were a quite different creature altogether. But this is, as I said, this is you know, spring of 66, so I think this is quite possibly the very first written about him. And, of course, Neil Innes, who died a couple of weeks ago. Yeah,
0: we haven't really had an opportunity to pay tribute yeah. to Neil Innes. Actually, he died about a month, five weeks ago now. We're, we're late, that we should have... I, I think something happened, like I got burgled or something. We weren't able to problem. talk about my this, right. and we got some rattles and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, a really a, am- comedically, a towering yeah, figure. Yeah, really. absolutely. Uh, heavily involved in Monty Python flying circus Yeah, in various ways. Well, it was great to have this early piece, Mark.
2: Really oh, I was, I was really pleased to do that. Yeah. Moving forward. Almost decades, Paul McCartney being interviewed by Paul Gambaccini for Sounds. It's actually, it was for a radio broadcast, but he just transcribed it and wrote it up for Sounds. I'd have done and the same. This is obviously the Wings period. And it's, <laughs> it's proto-Brexiteer Paul McCartney. <laughs> one, <laughs> of the worst, worst one of the worst things almost about the common market is that miles are going to become kilometres.
3: He later on says,
2: whoever's going to change kilometres to miles is going to be reading a book in ten years and say, ah, miles, they were good, weren't they? It was a nice word, wasn't it? Then later on he says, the millimetre isn't even that clever a measurement. I understand it's more modern and it's easier being intense, but I know it's not for me.
0: The millimetre is not for maca. That's
1: just <laughs> surprising. <sublime. laughs> what a ridiculous thing. I mean, it, 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 it's, we,
2: we also haven't moved
1: on from miles yet, so...
2: Well, I, I'm quite, you know. Exactly. I, you know, this, I suppose that really speaks to the reticence of the British public. Do we? I, know? I, I, I don't know. I, I kept his I, head down, I, if because yeah, he knew someone had digged out this article. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Got gotcha, maca. But if this ever
3: changes...
2: Makes you give in and cry Say, live and let die a year later brexit more um, patton or Peyton for the melody maker november 76 reviewing johnny guitar watson at the hammer now, we've got on the site two other reviews of that tour, but from Newcastle University, one by our friend Cliff White and the other by Vivian Goldman. Vivian
0: was big on Johnny Guitar they Watson. They both
2: rave about these mm. shows, even though the show they saw was ragged, it was early in the tour and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Maureen Payton really doesn't like it at all. And the thing is, there were two Johnny Guitar Watsons. There's Johnny Guitar Watson, 50s, early 60s, jump blues artist. And then there was 70s Johnny Guitar Watson. funketeer. Funketeer. And she obviously was really loved the old blues stuff. Okay. And so she says the audience likewise seemed unsatisfactorily split down the middle between those relentless party partying in the aisles to I Need It sung three times. And those who had come for guitar chainsaw massacres and got only two golden oldies from his virtuoso days. A sorry tale. So Ain't that a bit? Ain't that a bitch? Well, you see <laughs> it's funny you say that, because if you read both of Cliff White's and Vivian's The end, the very last line is Ain't that a bitch? bitch. I love that track. Uh, I mean, I love both. I I, I really love his as a a blues artist. He was so funny and so witty and interesting. But I just love the funk too. Yeah. But Maureen, she just was
0: not dealing he's with it. He's one of the great characters of oh, black American music, he's isn't he? Absolutely magnificent. I um, mean, he's also had a. Has anyone ever written a book about him? No, you'd think.
2: I, I think Vivian was going to. Because there's a really a whole interesting set of stories around him. Right? Who is it? He, he became a pal of Larry Williams's. During the drug-dealing days in, in, oh, in yeah. Los Angeles. those are not
0: pretty tales. Not pretty tales, yeah. but they're really riveting tales. Yeah, you know? I mean, they we're talking, you know, a lot of cocaine yeah. and guns. But
2: but but also, he was a pile of Frank Zappa's, all kinds of stuff. And at the very end, I mean, when I was working with Glass Gallery at the Museum, the head of the ceramics at Glass at the v had Johnny Guitar Watson playing piano around at his house for a couple of times. <laughs> Sorry! <laughs> Sorry.
3: <Yeah. laughs> Can you just say that again?
2: <laughs> Head of ceramics... Yeah, Oliver Watson. At, at the Victorian Albert Museum yeah, in yes, yeah. Kensington. Had Johnny Guitar so Watson
0: what, playing yeah. piano as his partner. Well, see, Oliver Watson... I've heard it
2: all. Oliver Watson is Ben Watson of The Wire's Brother, and Ben Watson is fanatical about Johnny Guitar okay. Watson as well. okay
0: does I've do with
2: it. But, but he's had a fascinating life as an R&B yeah. musician, without ever having really massive stellar hits, but always... You know, keeping his head above water.
3: And when you pay your rent and your car note you ain't got a damn thing left. Ain't that a bitch? <laughs> yes, it is. Somebody doing something slick. Sounds
2: 1979. Pete Silverton spends a day, I think it's in Scotland, with John Cooper Clark. Um, John Cooper Clark is he always gives great interviews for yeah. the start. And a lot of this interview is about his Catholicism. And he says, I'm a socialist Catholic, if you know what I mean. At a moment, I'm trying to reconcile Catholicism with international socialism. (laughs) That's how I've always thought of John Cooper. My dad was the big problem, you know. He, He sent us to a Catholic school, but he was a professed atheist. So you know, interesting. That's there. That's that's, that, that, yeah, that, that's there. It's a really, really good interview. Pete Silverton, uh, We have a lot of time for. We certainly um,
0: do. Uh, uh, and, and JCC too. I'm, yes. I knew him very briefly, a little bit in the in the eighties. And he was such a such a nice guy and so funny. I really, really liked him. Yeah. And I think I have. Probably mentioned this on a podcast before, so so just juke me down. or cut it out. But I did have this experience with him where he, I went back to his flat in Brixton, and, <laughs> and emerging like a ghost from the kitchen was Nico. That's right. It was his kind of flatmate, and they were they were touring a lot, doing gigs together, yeah, 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 yeah. Gibber-Clark and Nico, and Amazing. I think they did some work together. But yeah. really cool. hey, he get, was lovely. Did he
2: did, did, did ever get into the drug side of
0: things? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly he had serious drug problems right. back then. yeah, yeah.
2: Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, these... if you're sharing flat with Nico, you had no choice but to have a serious drug problem. Really. Yeah, but it's not, it's not a great way to stop... <laughs> <joke>. <laughs> Moving on to 1987, this is John Hazelwood for number one, and the, the title of the section, which is the regular section, is Pop Stars and the Strange Things They Own. And this is Slime <laughs> Robbie, the marvellous red-ridden section. <laughs> He says, John is right, they're sitting in an unpleasant office in their record company telling me their secret. It's this, explains Sly, pulling out a calculator. Er, uh, right, a calculator. Uh, no, it's a Cyan XB and it's a personal pocket computer or a Filofax computer if we're going to be yuppie about it. We have bought ours from a shop in Tottenham Court Road last year for <laughs> £139. Our keeper in Jamaica had one and we said, man, that's for us, it's changed our lives. I always love reading things about old technology yeah. when it's
0: new. Neil Tennant mentioned the cyan in that 1996 <laughs> audio that we had last yeah, week. He yeah. talks about the cyan organization. Well, that, that,
2: well this, has been in, this is 87, so it's, it's a pre-organised Yeah, organics. 139 £139 in 87. a, a lot, lot, of lot, of lot of money for quite
1: a chunk. Yeah. For a pocket I,
2: device. I, I, I just love... Articles about dead technology where mm. people are extolling it. It's like the future. Yes, the, <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: the brave new <laughs> yes,
2: And this is, this is it. It's a quaint now. Yeah, I know. Uh, 1999. This is a really interesting. There's a the, the series of, of interviews by Fred Shurrers with fathers and sons in mm. music. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and this one is with the Wainwrights, Loudon and... <laughs> the Wainwrights. And home with the Home Wainwrights. <laughs> 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 Loudon and Rufus. Now, I think we all know that... Rufus's relationship with his father was very complicated and quite distant. He's and Martha's too. Yeah. 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 So on the one hand, kind of Rufus is quite generous. So I'm only starting to understand a lot of his life right now. For the longest time, I resented my father and hated him. But now that I'm in the same business and I'm touring and doing the same things he's doing, I can readily understand why he acted the way he did, why he wasn't around so much his whole life out right there. Which is sure, meat and potatoes, straightforward stuff. Loud, on the other hand. If it's your own kid becoming famous, it's difficult. You're jealous of youth, and certainly, in his case, talent. At the same time, you find yourself sending his record to people and bragging about him. I felt very uncomfortable with having a hit with Dead Skunk. I don't think Rufus is going to have that problem. I've seen him. He's very happy in limousines. He's totally at home leaning on those plush leather seats. And something ever so
0: slightly catty about that, isn't it? I love the honesty of the Wayne Wrights, I have to say. I mean, you know, Rufus was a pretty fucked up little kid and, and yeah, yeah. he'd go on to have addiction problems, uh, as as many children of entertainers do. Yeah. But actually, I think they've kind of... It's, there's been a hard-fought piece yeah. in the Wayne Wright <laughs> plan. And my great memories of seeing when I interviewed Rufus... In New York in about 2001, I saw him play a show and he introduced, there's a famous Loudon song called Rufus is a Tit,
3: yeah. man, <laughs> which is
0: brilliantly all about dad's jealousy that, that little Rufus gets to suck on mum's tit. Yeah, yeah, right?
2: basically. T- and,
0: and so Rufus decided <laughs> to, to, to do a cover of this live and he introduced by saying in his wonderfully camp voice, Rivers a tit man, hmm. maybe not, Dad. Think a little lower. <laughs> <laughs> it always stayed in my mind. Uh, it- yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a
2: really, it's an interesting interview. Um, you know, it was a two of them obviously interviewed separately, but. I suspect of that whole section of Rolling Stone interviews that I'm going to be putting to the library over the next few months. What are the um, oh, comb- th- There's the the Kuda father and son. Kuda, yeah, Rai Kuda and oh, Rai son. Oh, yeah, Rai sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's the uh, Marlies, even though Bob is not interviewed because right. he's dead. dead. Yes, <laughs> it's difficult. That one <laughs> uh, I, I can't remember offhand. There are there
0: are a bunch okay. of them. But I, suspect this, but I suspect this is going to be proved to be the most interesting of the, of the last. It's actually know? a really great idea, yeah. I think, because I, think it, it, I suspect it really is there quite a lot of dynamics to yeah. be explored yeah. and worked through for. Yes. Yeah. But also kind of yeah, the, the whole slaying yes. of the father, Freud, Freud's whole yeah. line on you have to kill the yeah. father. You know? Also,
2: this is the first generation <laughs> of musicians who are second generation, yeah. effectively. Yeah. This, this is a quite recent phenomenon. I mean, an early example was Marty Wilde daughter. Kim Wilde was a very early example of this. But, you know, when you think about it, the musicians of the 60s, their children in the late 80s, yeah. 90s, would be coming through, some of them choosing to follow their parents, yeah. their fathers or mothers, into whatever it is that they did. And Rufus, it's interesting because... You know, the female side of the family it was interesting in a sustained way over many years. I mean, his sister, I think, has made some
0: really interesting records. Sure. Uh, the, the McGarrigals, that's mother that's and aunt.
2: is It's just one of... It's just a, just gorgeous Yeah, just record. the coming
0: together of those two families yeah. I think is so interesting yeah. in itself, you know.
2: And, you know, imagine being brought up in a household where singing and song was absolutely
0: central to what everyone did. Mm-hmm. Must
2: be, you know, really quite something.
0: I mean, normally, the sons and, and for that matter, daughters of Really talented musicians mm-hmm. tend not to be as good. That's you awesome. know, like Stephen Stills' son, or the Marley's boys, or you know Bob Dylan's. Those, Dylan, I mean, new, they're so overshadowed by yeah. the achievements of their parents. But I think in this case, I actually think Rufus. Is a, a more special talent than than Loudon. I like Loudon's record. I think he's very funny. No, I agree and, with you. But I think Rufus musically this, yeah. it's such it's so much richer, and the the canvas yeah. is so much. Better. And Love knew it. And, as, and I as think kind of knew. It. As he says, does there? he say in this? I don't know if I read it in that piece where he, he actually he, he's quite honest about being. Disappointed that he's not going to get necessarily a grand grandchild from Rufus. Not one. that it follows, because actually, as it turns out, Rufus and his husband do have yeah. children. And do, I mean, do, does his sister had children as well. I don't know if Martha's right. got kids, and they have a very funny relationship well, indeed. as well. There's a indeed. wonderful. We mentioned Dyke Parks earlier. One of Rufus's great tracks is called. I think it's called. It's not, it can't be called Little Sister, because that, but it's got sister in the mm-hmm. title. Little sister, Little sister come,
2: come and sit beside yeah. me Beside yeah. me And we'll play
0: a tune
2: on this old piano
1: And it's
0: just a brilliant, brilliant song about sibling rivalry. Right. About artists. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say,
1: there's another another probably article series to be written about siblings in the music industry. Well, indeed. And there are lots and lots of. And they all hate
0: each other. Families pretty, are just so fascinating, pretty, aren't they?
2: But I mean, the, the number of brothers who have formed bands and that, it's all ended really badly. We could
0: probably name 30 <laughs> pairs of brothers we could. who have come to virtually kill each
2: other. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking last was it last week about brothers who actually stayed together for a long time and it's, it's fine and thinking they're the exception you know, the, the rule is... Who
0: were they? Oh, I can't remember. I know, but we were, and you're yeah. right. And they, they, there probably is only one exception yeah. to the but then you
2: think about the Kinks. I mean... Yeah. Oh,
0: just know, The, 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 just the Gallaghers. Um, uh, who else? Uh, recently <laughs> this is when little self-riffed. I know, you I know. At least know. 30.
1: <laughs> one, two, three, 30.
0: <laughs> that's Jasper. <laughs> <laughs> just just underscoring the uh, incipient senility uh, uh, at work yeah. here. Uh, no, but but there no, are I, lots. No, no there no, are
2: no, for sure. Um, I mean. It is oh, right, uh, to yes,
0: right to <laughs> us. Just right to us. Phone <laughs> in.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, but but um, it, is, it is an interesting phenomenon. And, and, and I've got
0: another pair. The Robinsons. On. Black Crows.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. Chris, did they, did they Chris
0: Robinson and Rich Robinson. Real feud for a long time. So I've managed one more. I've oh, really... The medals did all right, though, didn't they? Neville's, well, well, I mean, no, think no, even. No, no. I well, think even.
3: F- yeah.
0: there. I think it's probably okay if there are more than two brothers. I see. Yes, that's interesting. interesting. The Everlys,
2: but also I mean, the Everlys. Oh, the, the, the Everlys! For years, would tour and they'd be in separate hotels, take separate flights, have nothing to do with each other off stage, yeah. and get together on stage, look into each other's eyes, and yes. sing sweet harmonies, yeah. and then they march off again. I've come up with the perfect example.
0: Yes, Ross, Ross, Ross. Yep. Thank you. Oh, well, that's pretty good. I that was staring perfect. in plain sight, wasn't <laughs> it? It's <laughs> partly because they're called broth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there
2: you go. There you go. Well, well, that, no, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one. What have... Jasper or Barney, which, what have you got? Do oh, you remember me? our name.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I will mention just two or three things and then Jasper will probably go into more detail. No, Uh, just two as well for me. Okay, two for you, all right. So I just want... I'm not going to talk at length, but Paul Lester wrote a lovely piece about The Associates in Record Collector in 2007 that we're including. And I love Paul's taste. We see eye to eye on many things. We both love the Associates. And it's just a very, you know, this is the sad story of the great Billy McKenzie, who starts off by saying the, the greatest pop singer of the 80s, British pop singer of the 80s. I think I might almost go along with that. Really underrated. People have forgotten how great the associates were. He talks at some length to Alan Rankin, who was the other associate, yeah. about Billy and Billy's... Billy's extraordinary, you know, sexual confusion could never... Just, just basically, someone said he would just shag... He'd shag the hair on a barber's floor. <laughs> so he was... What a
3: metaphor. Yeah,
0: yeah, but... And, you know, some years later, he, he killed himself. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was just really heartbreaking. The other, the other piece I really actually enjoyed was the story of Wheatus's Teenage dirt bag. Oh, man. Which is just one of the immortal pop songs of the last oh, sort of 15 Christ. years. It's sort of dreadful, but rather wonderful yeah, yeah, too, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty dire. What's interesting is, and I can't remember language. the names of the, the two people, is this Henry Yates who writes quite a lot also for classic rock and other magazines. But he just he interviewed the main songwriter and the guy that helped to write it and produce it. And actually they're really articulate about what the song is about and it's it's an interesting little story it's that whole idea of you know if you are an adolescent growing up in like long island Mm -hmm. you know in in the early early noughties and everybody's telling you you're a piece of shit well you become a piece of shit Mm, yeah and that's what it's really about and and i think that that's that a lot of adolescents could could attest to that. Mm-hmm. If you call me a dirtbag, I'll show you dirtbag. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it made me think about that song in a slightly different way.
3: Feel... What are
1: your offerings? First of all, Flying Lotus at Colston Hall in Bristol. Flying yeah. Lotus is a producer of really quite intense and out there electronic music right. who I really rate. I think he's fantastic. He also has a label called Brainfeeder. Thundercat is on that label. Mm-hmm. right? So kind of that intersection of jazz and electronic music, yeah. he's sort of at the forefront of that in yeah. a lot of ways. And in fact, I think he's Alice Coltrane, earlier mentioned, I think he's Alice Coltrane's nephew. I think he is. Is that right? That's
0: absolutely
2: correct. And... This is very interesting because when I was on New Year's Day talking to Sean O'Hagan from the High Llamas, and he's become really interested in this this specific area. He said for years he's about he's a bit younger than me, probably around your sort of age, I'd guess. But you know, for a long time, like a lot of what, our generation, 93? yes, that's yeah. that. For a lot, like, like a lot of our generation, he just re- was rejecting all the new music he heard as being just a revamp of the old stuff. And suddenly, he started discovering these people. Working. Like Alice Coltrane? You mean. No, no. Oh, Flying Lotus. Yeah, exactly. These LA. Finding his new generation. And also a lot in London, where there's. Interesting there's a fantastic jazz and London jazz scene
1: that I've sort of waxed. Yeah, i really needy. Well, we'll get yeah. short into.
2: Yeah, but Flying Lotus is great. And, yeah. and Stephen
1: Dalton goes to see him perform. And there, I mean, other Brain feeder actor on the bill as well. Mm. Thundercats there. And. Stephen Dalton concludes saying, Immersive, inventive and ablaze with audiovisual bling, this dazzling experiment in sensory overload had one foot in underground club culture and another in Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. And I think it is really interesting the way that he just blends all these disparate sort of influences and ideas into this really vivid kind of intense. as I said. Out of
2: interest, what component does rhythm have? As part of this, a big component,
0: yeah. a very but big what component. What sort source of not result. all his pieces are rhythmic, but there, there's, there's quite, quite a lot more of, sort of ambient yeah, sort there, of there stuff going on. Yeah, there are more ambient on. sort of things yeah. as
1: well, but there's quite a lot of skittering rhythms, right. Quite frenetic, mm-hmm. quite fast, and so there's a lot like out of
2: drum and bass, bass yeah, to some degree. Yeah, it's... to
1: an extent. I mean, there's a lot of sampling that he will do mm-hmm. of, of certain things and sounds and synthesis as well. Mm-hmm. It's quite mixed actually. He has done a lot of different stuff. I mean. The album that really captivated me was called "You're Dead," and it's really short. It's like <coughs> 33 minutes long, or something, and it's kind of magnificent in its blazing trajectory. Well, I love Just, the sound of the 33-minute
2: mm, album because one that, of the problems we all
0: have with the music 40. is
2: that people make records 40, so far yeah, it's too fast. is a long. good length, yeah,
0: for a long player. Yeah.
2: That's Flylow, as he's known, to, uh, a fan. As, <laughs> as he's known to Rufus Wayne Wright. <laughs> uh, Sorry, <laughs> and uh, a slight, slight jump, and then
1: the year after 2015, an interview with One Direction's Harry Styles and Nile Horan. Oh, fabulous!
2: Tell so <laughs> us about this, Jasper. So right this up, is Pit Williams right
1: interviewing Harry and Nile. As part of a sort of round table interview, which is kind of an interesting format. Lots of, I think, different publications, but the other publications are only identified by their countries, which is kind of strange. So you've mm. got like Belgium asking
0: questions and or
1: Bulgaria Sweden asking, asking questions. A
3: question.
0: <laughs> and so I've actually, the, the quote that I picked Eurovision is. Song uh, the
1: quote that I picked is actually Sweden asking a question. This is, this is actually Pip is writing for Coup de New Zealand. And this is Sweden asking you're about to have your last concert before the break. How do you feel about that? So One Direction, a big announcement, One Direction, of taking a break. And Niall goes on, it's obviously going to be emotional because we've toured every year for the last five years. Doing shows our favourite thing. Blah, 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 blah. And then Sweden follows up with, do you think you'll cry? (laughs) (laughs) Niall goes, can't tell until we're there, I suppose. (laughs) Harry Styles... Things like that is usually things that sink in afterwards. I think we're going to enjoy the last show. They're quite sweet. I, I mean, yeah. One Direction get sort of mercilessly slagged off at all times. Because As sort all hugely you know,
0: successful boy bands do, most part. And
1: Harry Styles has actually been reasonably successful with his solo career, unlike mm. a lot of yeah. boy bandiers. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I haven't really... I mean, I've heard, actually... Reasonable things about his latest record being a sort of a pretty decent pop record. I haven't spent enough time listening to it to sure. be able to judge that. Have you spent not, any
0: time listening to
1: it? I just tried to listen to it on the Tube this morning and I sort of zoned out and forgot that I was listening to it. So <laughs> I don't know what that says <laughs> yeah. about
2: well, Actually, it. That, that process of what happens to people in the Leaf Boy bands is it can be quite interesting. I and mean, of course, take, take that, that story, is, is, Robbie. Is, Robbie. Mm. Yes, I mean, mm. where Barlow was the one everyone assumed was going to have the solo yeah. hits. And he went about it by, became, by, by being as... <laughs> yellow card. He went about it by being as conservative as he could, you know, trying to turn himself into some middle-aged singer-songwriter sort of thing. Mm. A bit of Elton, a bit of Paul McCartney yeah. in there. Well, Robbie Williams, who no-one was expecting to do jack shit, who, after he had left the band, was then seen at...
0: Glastonbury getting smashed with Oasis and sort of coming mm, I saw him wasted backstage at Earl's Court with Oasis. <laughs> yeah. And he was fat and pudgy and yeah. drunk. And I remember thinking you're already a has. That's right, and then lo and behold, lo and behold, he
2: has. He's the one who has the massive hit. Oh yeah, you know? and actually, sustained for a few years, a really m- monumental career. It seems to have rather Peter Diamand. You know, I, I think. I think he's he, he's run his. He, course. Course. he mostly spends his control. time on the roof of his house pretending to be Robert Plant to
0: irritate <laughs> Jimmy Page who next door. <laughs> that is a full-time career. That is a full-time <laughs> career.
3: <laughs> and but he does paid one quite as
0: much. <laughs> That. As he did for, for selling
2: yes. out Nebworth. but I mean that was a re- that was an, was an interesting story regardless of what yeah. you think about the any of the artists concerned. And yeah, there's, there's, there's this
0: good dynamic going. So I mean. take that, that's that. Take that, Jasper. Is that it? We take wonder. <laughs>
3: Thank
0: you. Uh... Uh, I think I think that's it. Just to say, we will be back next week with. The great Michael Watts, the man to whom David Bowie had confessed to being gay, even though he wasn't gay, <laughs> in 1972.
1: And who has written much else besides and doesn't want to be known just for doesn't
0: that. Doesn't want to be known just for that. Yeah, Michael Watson,
1: one of the great Absolutely. music writers. Absolutely. Fantastic I mean,
0: we were we'll, we'll really stolen his Laura Lera piece last week. We were. He's very funny, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite acerbic, uh, uh, and uh, had to be had to be really cajoled yeah. into he still doing He sort of what, 72, 73
2: at Melody Maker? I think
0: he might have been there even earlier than that. Yeah, he was part of like that intake, Richard Williams and so forth, people who came off, Provincial newspapers yes. who actually yeah. had learned how to be German. Yes, and to do shorthand. And Manly that. Maker had five or six of them. Yeah. And Good. Well, great. Well, we will talk in depth about that. Yeah, yeah yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that wraps it up. We'll be here next week, hopefully back in the main Rocks Pages cupboard. Yeah, Studio with, One. With, <laughs> <laughs> with Michael Watts. Thanks for joining us today. Thank See you very you much for listening. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye.
3: But you got to have friends. And nobody told me anything about anything, but when Sunhouse said to me, Mark, I want you to get me some whiskey. I didn't know that you could not get whiskey <laughs> for Sunhouse, but I knew 10 minutes later. And uh, I went in and got him just, it was just uh, a two pint or something. And, uh, but 10, 10 minutes later he was going, I'm Sunhouse, king of the blue. <laughs> I'm son House, the king of the blue. He didn't even put an S on there. And when we got to the loft, Baby James, which was the name of Skip James's wife, Baby, <clears throat> said to me, you didn't give Mister House any whiskey." <laughs> son did his entire set three times in the dressing room.
1: That was Buzzy Linhart in conversation with Steve Roser in 2008, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon podcast network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Um, also, Hold on.
0: it's Harley can Harley Kahn! <laughs> 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 Are we going to leave that in the podcast? Harley come. Yeah. I think this is... Harley can Harley cunt. Cunt. <laughs> Go and fuck off. That's got to say